you know, it's different when you're in a Fortune 500. Hopefully, that's not your first CISO job. But if you're in a what I call an unfortunate 5,000, you're in a small company where you have to be very creative with your resources and uh, to get the most out of those resources. Man, it's a learning experience, and I, you know, you just again, it sounds crude to say it, but you've got to skin your knees a few times. You've got to make bad decisions. You've got to have done things that, in retrospect, you go, "Oh my God, that was the dumbest thing I've ever done." From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and I'm back again with Mark Weatherford, CISO and Head of Regulated Industries at Alert Enterprise. If you haven't already, go back and listen to our prior episode where we set the foundation for Mark's career. Today, we pick up where we left off and delve deeper into his lasting legacy in cybersecurity. Experience can be everything. Without it, you may be setting yourself up for failure. So how do you know when you're ready to take on a leadership opportunity? What does it really mean to be coachable? When should young people ask for help? And when should it be offered? If you would, tell us a story about how you had to go to the basement of the White House. You go to the sit room for a briefing. And the famous question, the first thing I would ask, which I think is what you asked, would be, do I prepare? And I got to set this up even another way. It makes me think of, I think, I think it's in clear and present danger where they bring in Harrison Ford's character, or maybe it's actually getting played by Jack Ryan's character. I should say not Harrison Ford, Jack Ryan's character. It's basically just sit there and don't speak. And you don't need to prepare, just be in the room and whisper in my ear. Uh, if I need to say like, there's sort of this setup in my mind, this is what you're going through. It's like, do I need to prepare? And like, no, just sit there and shut up and just take notes and then we'll make a decision later. But something else happened. So, so I probably did a really shitty job setting that up, but that's what's in my mind. And I had to get that out this morning. So tell us about your, you go to the basement, you go to the sit room, what's going on? Yeah. So there's, you know, there's different protocols for different kind of meetings in the White House. You know, you have a cabinet meeting where the secretary will show up and, and there's always um, a question, okay, is there a plus one? The meaning is, can they bring someone to the meeting with them? And then there's, there's a deputies meeting and where it's the, all of the deputy secretaries from all the cabinet agencies, you know, can show up. Well, this was a deputies meeting, but it was a, small deputies meeting. If I remember, there were like, I think there were six cabinet deputies and they're probably from Intel related agencies. I don't even remember what the, what the topic of the discussion was, but the deputy secretary, Jane Lute, she asked me to come to this meeting with her. And like you said, I'm like, okay, you know, I don't know what a deputies meeting is. And I just figured out what a plus one means. And I'm going to be your plus one. What do I need to do? And she said, nothing, you know, just uh, this is more for experience for you. Now, this was her leadership. It's like, okay, I'm bringing you to this meeting. I just want you to kind of see how these things work. Get, you get a little kind of experience and you can meet a few of the people here. So I can remember we're in our black suburban. We're going into the White House. We go through a couple of checkpoints and park in front of the West Wing. 
and we go into the sit room and it's, you know, the sit room is just, it's a pretty small room. There are different conference rooms, obviously, but there's a pretty small room. I don't know. It's a table that will probably seat maybe 15 or 20 people and then chairs around the outside. So they said there were, I think there were six or maybe eight deputy cabinet deputy secretaries there and John Brennan. And John Brennan at the time was a national security advisor. And there were a couple of other people there. But anyway, they're having this conversation. You know, I'm sitting back here being, you know, my quiet self, just kind of observing and taking it all in and gets kind of winding down. And, and John Brennan says, so, Mark, what do you think about this issue? And I just remember you know, my mind going blank. It's like, you know, you're looking at a jaguar just standing right in front of you and the, the blood drains out of your face. and You're thinking. What am I going to do now? Let me pause right there. So so for those that don't know, John Brennan, he's the fifth director of the CIA. And so you're in a meeting in the basement of the White House. You're there as a plus one. You're getting asked about, you know, whatever the question was. We've got UFOs or something. John Brennan needs to know. And he needs to ask, he wants to know what, what Mark thinks immediately. Now, what I want to know, why didn't you, so you Obviously, you're in the meeting and, I, and you're mission focused and you've got a, just a crap load of experience. Like, were you not thinking about like when I'm in these situations, I've never been in this situation like this before. But when I'm in a baby version, a tiny microscopic version of this, I'm always thinking of if I get asked a question on this, what would it be? I'm always kind of paranoid to that level to think, OK, what is what would I say briefly? Were you kind of like thinking, OK, this meeting's about ready to end. I'm ready to get the hell out of here. And then I get a question or because you said you go blank and it caught you off guard. Caught me off guard. But I mean, I answered the question. I don't re I don't remember what I said. I don't remember what my thoughts was. I know that no one looked at me like, oh, that was the dumbest thing we've ever heard. But yeah, I mean, you're sitting in a meeting, even in any kind of a meeting as you're as you're watching the dialogue happen, you're thinking, oh, OK, I have I, I get what he's saying or I understand what she just said. And here's what I would think I would say, or here's how I would respond. So yeah, you kind of go through those motions as in the conversation. And, you know, I don't think I was, I, I was completely caught flat footed because I didn't expect to get a question. Maybe it's a crude measuring stick, but I didn't get fired and nobody yelled at me. So I guess it wasn't that bad. Oh, that's so the other thing I want to ask is, is there a protocol? So John directly asked you the question and is there protocol, maybe unwritten, unspoken, that you defer to the person that has, like, even though John asked this direct, it, do you pause a moment or, like, is there a protocol just in general, maybe not in this example, but is there protocol to, like, pause and let the level up from you give an answer? Is that, a, is that the proper government etiquette? No, no. I mean, you get asked a question. The question is to you. Yeah, it's it's yours. And I think he was he was doing the same kind of thing. He was saying, Okay, I'm gonna give Weatherford a chance to talk here. You know, he's sitting back here being quiet and but he's running with the big dogs now. And that's kinda of always the kind of the way I look at it. You know, and I ran into John Brennan a few more times over the course of it. And I won't say we're you know, we're we weren't pals or we weren't friends, but we were friendly. I think that's a very likely I mean not only did he obviously want to hear what you had to say, your past was was there with you, meaning he knew kind of the posts you'd had before and the career you'd had. 
But I also think it's another lesson for all of us when we're at the bigger table and there's someone else's plus one, when you're the one in charge or in the group of people that are making a decision and there's others that have been brought. I think it's one of the best things a CISO can do to important meetings is bring their plus one to bring maybe a middle manager in with you or a team lead in with you to get this same, maybe not the same gravity, you know, maybe not in the sit room, but there are other versions, career level, appropriate level sit room scenarios where you have that chance. So he was giving you a moment to feel included. And now, you know, 10, 12, however many years later, you're telling the story and it's a, it's a leadership example. It's entertaining, but it also emphasizes what he was probably thinking back then as his way of including you. Right. And and what a great thing that was. Yeah. And, you know, and I've done that throughout my career too. I can remember even when I was in the Navy, I would bring some of my younger sailors into some of my meetings. And sometimes I would give them the opportunity to present, to give a briefing, because it's important from a leadership perspective, because these are the people that are, they're going to be sitting in your chair at some point. And, you know, when you can start giving your staff, your team, the ability to to start engaging with leaders, it's a confidence builder as much as it is a skill developer. So it's just really, really important that you do that for your for your folks. And it's the single greatest way you can prepare yourself to scale. Meaning if some big event happens and you go from 10 people to 35, or there's a crisis and you need to go two or three or four levels deep in order to manage opinion and collaboration and communication, like pro- like whatever it is, it's, it's one of the single greatest things. Pull them into your world. It's exactly what you're talking about. Pull them into your world and get them a little bit ready. Don't I always say, don't make an introduction during a crisis. And that's, that's exactly what was going on there. So credit to them for making you the plus one and credit to Mr. Brennan who pulled you in and, and is helping us sort of relay this, this virtual mentorship today. It's awesome. So, you know, kind of jumping out of that, one of the other things we talked about, you know, you, you, you mentioned earlier, you know, we don't, not having experience without the scars. And I think that's super important. There's been sort of a rapid growth of security and technology. You have thoughts on that, but also more importantly, what's Mark's mentorship kind of perspective? So that's the scenario we're in. What's your advice, maybe in a, a partially bulleted list or just your themes of how do we get around, you know, those two items of this long career you've had? What's your advice to the younger listener or to the younger leader that's in the middle of security that wants to be better? And, and how do we tap into Mark's experience and, and all the thoughts you have? Yeah, I think, you know, a couple things. As a leader, I think we need to always be looking for opportunities to mentor. It's just kind of been my, my modus operandi, I think, my whole career. And, you know, maybe it started with Al Janello, I don't know. But I look for opportunities to mentor people, especially people that are working for me. But oftentimes, you know, people that I just meet. I mean, I probably get once a month somebody that I've never met said, hey, I heard you give a talk or I read this paper you wrote and I just like to chat with you. And, you know, I almost always take those people up on those. You know, if somebody wants to talk to me, about you know leadership, about security, I almost always, and I say almost always because sometimes 
if there's a sales component to it, I'm probably not interested. But if somebody truly wants to learn from me, you know, then I'm, you know, way more interested in, in giving my time to them. But the, the second piece of that is, and I did this, and I'll, I'll give you some examples in a second. But young people need to be, younger people, I say, should say, you need to be willing to step out and ask other people to help them. And maybe just be a friend, but maybe to help them. So the best example I have is almost everybody knows Alan Paler. Alan Paler was the founder of the Sands Institute. And I met Alan probably in maybe 1999. I think I was still in the Navy. I met Alan and he was this, this guy, he was running a business, but I, there's always a bit more to Alan than, than I think a lot of people understood. Alan became one of those mentors for me and I asked him and, and, you know, we, um, he was one of those guys that I never made a career decision in my life, literally without talking to Alan first. And as you know, Alan passed away last year and, but what, you know, he's just an amazing person. When I was in DC, you know, he lived in DC once a month, we would have breakfast and it was just, it was our way of just kind of keeping tabs on each other. And then there've been a couple of other people in my life that I said, you know what? I heard this guy talk or I like, I read something he wrote or she wrote and I wanted, you know, I think I can learn from this person. So that, that's my advice is to find people that, that in fact, who can be mentors to you and help you to become that, that better security leader. I didn't know Alan well. I had been in the room with him several times, had had nice conversations. A long, long time ago, I was just getting into InfoSec. In fact, I hadn't gotten into it yet. I was didn't have much money, and I couldn't afford SANS training. I wasn't sponsored, and I sent an email directly to Steve Northcutt. And I said, hey, you know, I know how to do some stuff. <laughs> I am not sponsored. I, I can't get training through work. But I would like to, is there some way I can help you guys and, and earn sort of the right to take some classes? And uh, he said, what do you know how to do? And I wrote an email back and he said, cool, you start tomorrow. And so I was on a call the very next day with Eric Cole and ended up co-authoring, this is ages ago, voice over IP hacking class that they had. I never taught it, but I ended up doing all the virtual labs creating them, the images. And then it was several books, as you know, would go along with this stuff and ended up writing just pages and pages and pages of stuff that goes along. And and that class was taught all over the world. And I was a very, very small piece, but I'm loosely affiliated. So I was a quote unquote, a contractor for SANS accidentally. Had I been any smarter, I probably would have had a better job that would have paid for my training and I wouldn't have sent that email. No, 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 no. That's that, that's not true. I tell you, because I did the same thing, and and what both Stephen and Alan did for me is they said, okay, there's going to be this the Sands conference. You can proctor one of the classes, which basically means you stand in the back and check badges as people come in and out. But I was able to attend the same classes that that everyone else was. I just didn't pay for it. Right, right, right. I was enthusiastic at the time to do it, but it was a. I'll also say, just as an aside, they'll give you 
it was supposed to be time boxed and they'll work you until you give up. Uh, so I had a full-time job, but, um, but no, I have a great, I didn't know Alan well, but I've been, I was, I did some other advisory work stuff for them and he was in the room and he just, he always just, he always just worked his ass off too. He was always just frantic, like taking notes and had notebooks and iPad, all this, you know, he always had a, a thousand things going on. So I want to ask you, you said the the breakfast meetings were just keeping up on, you know, keeping tabs on one another, but was there ever with him or anyone else kind of a, sounds lame, but a format or a, hey, you know what, I care about you and how are you doing and how's the family, but is there ever anything to, a vehicle that other people could borrow from to say, hey, you know what, you're going to meet and catch up, but these are the kinds of things that really high angle people cover in these mentoring lunches. You're meeting with Alan Powler because he has his stuff together. So what are you trying to extract or exchange or help or trade or reinforce? Or is it just having lunch? Am I overthinking it? Yeah, I think you're overthinking it from in that one. You know, Alan and I had been friends for a decade already when, when we were, were having the breakfast. And so it really was friends meeting for breakfast, no agenda. I don't say no agenda. I mean, he always wanted to know, hey, is there anything going on at DHS that I can help with? Because you know, Alan was a political animal too. He was well connected on Capitol Hill, but that wasn't his, that wasn't the reason he did it. You know, it was a, it was just two friends meeting. Now, I will tell you, when I do enter into kind of a formal mentorship, I have a few things that, you know, and, and different with different people because different people are at different stages of their career and they're looking to get different things out of, out of a mentorship relationship. But my number one thing, the very first thing that I ask people is, are you coachable? And that sounds like a very simple thing, but most people have never really thought of that as, am I coachable? And what, in fact, does that really mean? And it's not a yes or no answer, by the way. I want to know what people think that means. And so depending on, on the answers, I have told people I just didn't think, you know, it was worth our time together for us to try to do things, to try to work on things together. But being coachable means being willing to take hard advice and being willing to follow through on it. A lot of times people, and this sounds crude, but it's the truth. People just want to have their own ideas validated. So. If you disagree with them, then they just take no responsibility for the conversation. So that's the first, when I ask about people being coachable, there's a lot I get out of the answer for that. And I just want to know that if you're just there for, for you to tell me what you think without me offering any response and you following up on any of, or you accepting any of that, then probably not a not a relationship that's of any value to either one of us. So I think that's true in a lot of leadership areas. People just want to have their own ideas validated. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. But in a mentorship, you're, it, the idea is to be learning, not to just have your ideas validated. I think that there is, though, sometimes a case back, you talked about your kind of the quorum of three or four people that is, you know, hey, I have an opportunity to go take this other job. It's not really a, a mentorship in that regard, but you have your core of people 
that will give feedback on, is this decision, what are the merits of the decision, which is kind of a validation of an idea. This is not that. This is, hey, I need to sometimes bend the thinking of this mentee in a way that will steer them toward an opportunity away from trouble, uh, away from vanity, uh, whatever that might be, right? Of No, that's a great word. I tell you what, and you know, we don't talk about this often enough. But there's a there's a certain vanity associated with being a CISO today, and I think people want to they want to be a CISO so bad that having that vanity is all is more important than than the leadership responsibilities that go with the job. Yeah, I could spend a day on this, and we won't. But yeah, that that is a hundred percent. But I I see it often, and I think it sometimes clouds the judgment of people in their career-making, their, their decision-making processes that applies to their career, where they'll take a bigger title for a shittier job, like, or one that has less merit or whatever. And so there's that pollutant that is the vanity that, that is, it's worth tackling, right? And I think it is a, a job of a good mentee or mentor relationship to call that stuff out. Yep. You have to. I mean, and you have to be honest about it. And again, that's what being coachable means. If you're not amenable to taking, you know, tough feedback, then, you know, you're, you're not coachable. So what's the, the first question was, are you coachable? What was the other point? What are some of the other questions or topics that you cover? What else, what would be sort of the next thing you would ask in that, in that kind of that first meeting? I will typically kind of give them a homework lesson, maybe say, you know, I need you to tell me, you know, what are your goals and, you know, what have you done so far to achieve those goals? I mean, a lot of times people just have, you know, have the a sticker that says, I want to be a CISO, but they haven't put the effort into being ready for that when it, when that opportunity happens. And unfortunately today in, in 2022, there are there are so many CISO opportunities out there that people are getting these jobs without having done the hard work to get there. Not that they're bad people or that they're doing the wrong thing, but I think oftentimes people set themselves up for failure simply because they don't have the right kind of experience. So, you know, the homework of saying, okay, tell me what you've done, document for me what you've done to prepare for whatever it is you want in the next stage of your career. And that's typically what, what people ask me my advice about. That's brilliant. I think those are two wonderful places to start and it really begins to build a framework for mentorship. On mentorship, anything else that you would add quickly to that before I get to our last question? Listen, I think you've probably gathered from our conversation. Sincerity means a lot to me. Loyalty means a lot to me. And, you know, I try to figure out if people are sincere and loyal, if they're just interested in a promotion because they want to make more money. Again, that may not be a whole, whole in and of itself a bad thing, but there are certain ethical obligations that go along with being a leader and with being a CISO. And I try to figure out, um, you know, if people's heart is in the right place. I don't know, you know, it, it, there's probably nothing formal with that, but 
you know, most of my mentoring, and, and again, I, I have a handful of people that I mentor today. It's having a conversation. I'm hearing about what they're doing. I'm helping them with some of the decisions that they may have to make. You know, they, they tell me the things that they're struggling with. And I, and I just give them some options to think about. Mark, I've got one more question. We close every show on this and it's pursuant to the name of our show, the new CISO. What does being a new CISO mean to you? Well, it's a wide open field and being a new CISO is really understanding the responsibilities that come with it. And, and it's different, you know, it's different when you're in a fortune 500, hopefully that's not your first CISO job. But if you're in a what I call an unfortunate 5,000, you're in a small company where you have to be very creative with your resources and uh, to get the most out of those resources. Man, it's a learning experience. And, I, you know, you just, again, it sounds crude to say it, but you've got to skin your knees a few times. You've got to make bad decisions. You've got to have done things that in retrospect, you go, oh, my God, that was the dumbest thing I've ever done. But you do it, you do it early in your career where the implications or the ramifications are not people dying or your company goes out of business. They're recoverable decisions, those irrecoverable decisions. And unfortunately, they happen from time to time as well, irrecoverable decisions. I mean, it happens to, to the best of people, but you try to minimize and avoid those. And, you know, Getting certifications is, is great and well and good, but certifications basically tell what you know. And, you know, what you know is important, but man, I tell you, give me somebody with experience over knowledge and I'll take experience every day of the week. And so I think, you know, I think being a new CISO means having a repertoire of experience that validates your ability to fulfill the role. I like how you closed on that experience that sort of validates uh, your your position in, in the role. Mark, this has been not only entertaining, educational, but uh, you're a hell of a lot of fun to talk with. And I've I've sincerely enjoyed this. I know our listeners will. This is the finest form of virtual mentorship and education I sincerely appreciate the time you've given us today. I I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. Happy to be here. That is it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on xbeam.com forward slash podcast. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.